as I work with students and uh, speaking and talking and doing Q&As with students, talking to parents, I realize that we often have a an incorrect or a misguided approach or standard for our Christian living, how we approach Christian ethics. And so recently in my doctoral research that I'm working on, I'll tell you about here in a second, and then being asked to preach a sermon on 2 Corinthians 8-9, I realized something that really is foundational to Christians understanding why or how or our motivation for Christian living. And so I want to kind of work through all of that with you today. It's something that you probably already know, but it is always a very helpful reminder. And as I was preparing my sermon and researching and reading on this it really just hit in a new way, and that's what I want to talk to you about in the show today. So thanks for being here. My name is Ryan Polly, and this is Think Well, the show geared to train you to think well about the Christian faith and your cultural engagement so that you are able to engage the culture well. Um, and so uh, that's why I'm here, and that's what I'm doing. And so, hey, we're going to have a conversation today. Also, uh, I have the planned conversation. Uh, it's not going to take the whole time. And so if you want to post questions uh, for me to respond, to at the end, or at least try to respond to, give you something that I think about it, uh, you can post your questions in the live chat here on YouTube. As well as if you want to join, call into the show and have a conversation about something that is on your mind, uh, there is a link there in the YouTube live chat that you can click on and you can join me and we can discuss it after I'm done talking about this first segment. If you're listening after the fact, sorry, uh, gotta be here live. <laughs> but hopefully the encouragement and the questions that do come in will be an encouragement to you. And sorry if you are watching uh, from Facebook, uh, I'm having issues with my streaming software. So uh, anyways, here we go. Um, okay, so here's, I mean, I, how do I wanna start this? I guess I didn't think through a really good starting point, but hey, here we go. So here's what I've discovered, and I've, I've shared this story before. We often, as Christians, have this standard of these external motivations or external rules. We have um, external commands, right? I, I do what I do or I don't do what I don't do because my parents, my teacher, my pastor has told me not to do those things. Or we have kind of a, a look at this pragmatic approach that we go, okay, well, what is the effect on me? And the story that I've told before on here is, you know, I remember being at a summer camp years ago and a student walking up to me and saying, hey, I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. Um, uh, uh, what, you, what do you think about smoking weed and drinking? My parents and my youth pastor say it's wrong. They say it will make my grades suffer, that my grades will go down. It will hurt some friendships. But I smoke weed. I drink. I still have good grades and my friends are still my friends. So why is it wrong? My response was not to give him more external motivating factors or external rules or commands. Well, because they said so or because whatever, I kind of challenged his standard. Why do you judge the morality of smoking weed, drinking alcohol based on the effects it has on your life and then the fact that it has no negative effects then it must not be wrong. This is often how we approach this. And so this standard that I want to go over is something that we probably all know, that you've probably heard of, but again, I think it might hopefully hit you in a new way. It's something how when I approach uh, the topic of entertainment, 
This is the standard or the motivation that I try to use with students in, in evaluating and choosing what movies and songs and, and entertainment they're going to consume. I think this standard comes up when we look at uh, topics of sexuality. So I mentioned at the beginning, my doctoral research right now is uh, I'm researching a theology of the body. What does scripture have to say about our bodies? And then how does that inform or how should that inform our gender identity? as well as then our approach to people who are transgender, as well as having conversation with those struggling with gender dysphoria. And so I've been reading a theology of the body. Uh, specifically, what I'm going to share today comes from Christopher West's book. He's a Catholic theologian. Uh, his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. And uh, and so I've been reading this. And then again, I, I was asked to preach a, a short 15-minute kind of devotional sermon at my church on the topic of giving. Uh, and and the, the passage was 2 Corinthians 8-9. And as I was preparing my sermon on this passage, again, this idea, this motivation came up even in and how it affects our giving, our charitable giving as Christians. How do we tithe? Do we have some sort of external motivating factor? We're told give 10% or, or here's the positive outcome that this will give uh, or that this will kind of work towards. Uh, this often happens uh, when people are doing fundraising and support raising. You hear these kind of pitches. It's like, hey, you know, you, you've been drinking $5 a cup Starbucks coffee every day. Why don't you cut out one cup a week? That'll save you $20 a month and you can give that to me and I can take that $20 a month. And so you kind of almost like guilt trip people into giving. And so when I look at having conversations with students or myself on entertainment. What movies do I watch? What do I listen to? When I think about sexuality, you can. Uh, when you think about your giving, your generosity, pretty much any area of Christian living and Christian ethics, I think we often have this external motivating factor, these external rules and commands that we look to. And if there aren't those commands or rules, then we often don't go, okay, then this may not be wrong. Instead, I think scripture presents something different. And here's what I want to get into with you today. So I'm going to jump over to actually kind of my sermon notes or, or, or kind of work through this sermon with you. Because, you know, some people will go, oh, man, I wish I could have heard you preach the other night. And so, well, here you go. Here's what you get from me. So the passage that I was looking at was in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. That's not 2 Corinthians 8, 9. That's 1 John. Whoa, why did it just do that? Um... There we go. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Here we go. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, this might kind of seem like a weird kind of way in which to approach giving. So if you look at this chapter, and as you see there on the screen, if you're watching on YouTube, 2 Corinthians 8 is this appeal to complete the collection. And so what is happening is, is, is uh, Paul is, is reaching out to the Corinthians church and they're doing a collection for the brothers and sisters um, who are in need, financial need. And he's saying, hey, you should give to these people. These people are in need. And so he's appealing to the Corinthian church to offer their finances and be generous. He starts off at the beginning of the chapter appealing or, or giving the example of the church of Macedonia. You see there in verse two, it says, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And so here the Macedonian church, uh, even though they were financially poor, they were in poverty, they were still able to have this abundant generosity. Why? 
because they had this joy and there's this different way in which they approached this topic. And so here Paul is now getting into this idea in verse 9 where he says, uh, actually, if you could jump back, he says, now in verse seven, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this is a command. Now notice this, it's not a command. There's not this external command that we've been talking about here so far, where Paul's saying, you have to give, or you should give, or now trying to make some appeal to them to give. It's not an external command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. How is he going to do that? Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul switches here. Here's what's fascinating. Paul switches from talking about kind of material poverty and material riches to the spiritual poverty, spiritual riches. He talks about how Jesus, now notice this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, right? God's grace, giving what you don't deserve, right? The mercy of God is is not receiving what you do deserve. We deserve punishment. His mercy is to not punish us. His grace is giving us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve the riches and the glory and eternal life with him, but yet he's giving us these things. So because Jesus Christ is gracious, though he was rich, talking about rich in divinity, that he had the, 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 he was in heaven, for your sake he became poor. In the incarnation, he became poor. He took on human flesh. He took on human poverty, took on human sin, and ultimately died on the cross so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Now, again, this is how he's going to test the genuineness of their love. And if you look at this, why is this a test? Well, you can get into the big debate, and I'm not necessarily wanting to get into it here, but the big debate right, among Christians is like, are you saved by faith or by works? And you have Paul that seems to say you're saved by faith, uh, by grace through faith. Uh, James seems to say that you're saved by your works. And the solution is no, you're not saved by your works, but your works, what you do, shows whether your faith is genuine. That, that if, Is it a real te- tested kind of lasting faith? And so Paul here is appealing to the Corinthian church, saying, look, you have received the grace of Jesus Christ. He was poor. He became, or he was rich. He became poor so that you might become rich. So what does it mean then for you to say that you love Christ, that you want to follow Christ, yet you don't follow his example? We're starting to kind of get to the motivation here in a little bit. The example of Christ. Right? You say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, here's what Jesus did. Through He was abounding in grace, was rich, became poor for your sake. Now, who are you? What are you going to do? Are you going to follow that example and be gracious and be generous? Or are you going to keep what you have to yourself? Now, we see uh, kind of uh, the... Um, a further uh, explanation of this idea in Philippians chapter two. So let's jump over to Philippians chapter two, right? Notice this in the beginning of the chapter. If there's any uh, encouragement in Christ, any consolation in love, if any fellowship of the spirit, he starts in verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but the interests of others. So how can we do this? 
right? How do we get away from doing stuff out of our selfish, sinful desires? How do we look to other people as more important than ourselves or not our own interests, but the interest of others? He continues, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. There's the, he was rich in glory in heaven. He became poor. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Here we see Philippians chapter two, giving kind of an expanded idea of what we see of what has Jesus done for us and how is it then that we are called to live? How do we give up our selfish ambition and follow Christ or put others above ourselves. Now, one more passage here, and then I want to get to applying this to the different areas. And then again, for everyone who has joined, uh, you can send in any questions you have on culture or, or apologetics, worldview stuff in the live chat or join me live and we'll discuss this. But in 1 John three seventeen, here's why this is a test. I think that Paul is, is appealing to in, first, uh, in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, if anyone has this world's good goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. So don't just say you love people and that you follow Jesus, but allow your love to actually respond in action, in doing something positive. So again, this is why we go back to our chapter here in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 kind of our starting point for this conversation, that he says, look, I'm not saying this is a command, but rather I'm testing the genuineness of your love. Are, do you really love Jesus? Do you really want to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Say you love him and then not follow the example in his generosity towards others, giving up his wealth to become poor. So what is our motivation for Christian living? So here is, I think, the answer. It is not an external command, as Paul says here. It's not an external command. It is instead an internal devotion, an internal devotion, a devotion to the Lord. Now think about this for a second and let that sink in a little bit more than maybe it often does, or at least it did for me. Is this not what you want for yourself or for your children? I have two boys. This is what I want for them. When I speak to students at different schools and conferences, churches, this is what I want for them. Now, uh, theologian David Peterson says about this verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, the remarkable point is that this verse is the implication that it was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to such generosity, not specific preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share their possessions. The gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving in love. I've heard from Christian students that it's boring 
to keep hearing the gospel over and over again. We kind of see these kind of cliches, so to speak, of, you know, the gospel is just, you know, sin management, as Dallas Bullard used to call it. Just, hey, this is just helps me manage my sin. Or the gospel is my get into heaven free card or get out of jail free card. And we only see it as just, okay, this forgave me my sins. Thank you, Jesus. And we stop thinking about it. And what I want you to see here is the standard that Christ is calling us to is himself. And we see that perfect standard in the gospel. That's what Paul appeals to here in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 to say, hey, Corinthians, you should be generous. You should give. Why? Because Jesus, who is God, gave up his riches of divinity, took on human flesh, took on human poverty, took on your sin and the cross so that through his poverty, you might be spiritually rich, rich and alive in him. Paul doesn't say give because you should or give because you might get something back or give because it's just the right thing to do or give because he doesn't appeal to these external commands or motivations that we often do. Instead, he says, here's the gospel. Look what Jesus did. Are you following him? And if you're like me, you let this sink in. I go, wow, I'm not as I should, right? Our our sin has, has captivated us that we are often following after our sin rather than following after the example of Christ. How is it that I put others before me? Look to the example of Christ. How is it that I treat others in love and respect? Look to the example of Christ. How is it that I engage in my entertainment or areas of sexuality properly according to a Christian ethic? Look to the example of Christ. So I want to kind of get into the theology body here stuff really quick, uh, but notice this again. And the last part of this is kind of the, the sermon aspects that really kind of stood out to me as I studied this. The Corinthians had directly benefited from the generosity of Christ. He became what they were, which was poor, so that they could become what he was, which is rich. And therefore, Paul's then saying, was a material offering back to the work of Christ too much to ask? Right? If, if Jesus's self-sacrifice is the standard of moral living, right? how do we know what love is? Because he laid down his life for us. Right? We, we see that the standard of Jesus, his love, his generosity, his forgiveness is the standard. We can forgive. Why? Because he first forgave us. Think about the, right, this is, again, this is the practical application to how you choose to forgive others. Think about the parable that Jesus told of the unforgiving servant. Hi, Slam. Um, thank you for doing that. Um, right? The, the one servant is forgiven tons and tons and tons of money. He says, please, please forgive me. And the, the king forgives him. And then that servant who is just forgiven of so much goes out, finds someone who owes him a little bit of money. And what does he do? He says, pay up. The guy says, I'm sorry, I can't. Please give me time. And he says, no, and throws the guy and has the guy thrown in jail. When the king finds out what happens, he brings that one guy back and punches him. How can you not forgive him of his debt when I forgave you of so much more? Right? We are able to forgive. This is us. When Christ has forgiven me of so much, how do I not go and forgive others? When Christ has showed so much generosity and grace to me, how am I not generous and gracious with others? When God has loved me while I was still yet a sinner, how do I not go and love others? Right? This is the standard that we are called to. This is the way that Christ has called us to. And often we fall short. 
We fall short. Why do we fall short? Here's where kind of my reading from Christopher West in his, in his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, really kind of challenged me and, and really made me think of this in these different ways. We often don't trust God. And I talked about this with students all the time. This is what we see in the early chapters of Genesis with Adam and Eve and why they fell into sin is that they didn't trust God. They didn't trust that his plan was best, right? They started to fall like, oh, hey, maybe God is keeping us from something. And how, how true is this? Now think about this. If you're a parent, you're a student, whatever, talking to everybody here. Um, but I'm also trying to make it specific, but then I just name everybody. <laughs> um, think about this. When I, and I, t- I used to tell this to my high schoolers. If your parents ask you to do something on the weekend and you believe that what they're asking to you to do is best for you, is something good, then you just do it. You just follow along. When your parents are like, hey, you know, we have this plan for you. Uh, we're going to go to Hawaii. You're like, yeah, let's go. When are you disobedient? When they ask you to do something that you don't want to do, that you don't think is best. So then they say, hey, rather than going hanging out with your friends on Friday night, you got to stay home and watch your little brother. Or, hey, you got to do your homework first. You got to whatever, clean your room. Hey, can you clean your room right now? Rather than play your video games. That's when we get disobedient. Why? Because we go, hey, you're taking away my fun. This is not what's best for me. We want to do what's best for us. And if we're convinced that what the authority over us is asking us to do is best for us, then we just do it without complaining almost every time. And I think the same is true with sin. Very Way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve, they didn't trust God that his plan was best for them. They went and followed something else and it led to their rebellion. And I think the same thing. We often don't trust God. When God says, wait for marriage to have sex, we often go, man, he's taking away our fun. Look at all the people enjoying life. When God says, don't get drunk, we see all the people partying up, man, they're having all the fun. And we see the Christian living as being boring, that we don't actually believe God, that his way brings the most joy, the most pleasure, the most goodness into our lives. Christ is calling us to do something different. And here it is. It is not external commands, but as I said here just a moment ago, it is an internal devotion or he's asking us to live a Christian morality that flows from the heart where it is our own desires that cause us to do what we do. And here's what it is. The gospel isn't just freeing you from your sin and giving you heaven, but the gospel changes us and gives us. And here's what Christopher West says. And I I thought this was fascinating. Christopher West talks about how the gospel gives us the freedom to fulfill the law, not freedom from it. Now, I've talked about this on the show before, so I'm going to be quick. Um, But we as a culture, we have a, a wrong definition of freedom. We often, and, and I've talked about this before, I ask my students in my class, I would say, you know, can you define freedom for me? What does it mean to be truly free? And often the answer is free. I get to do whatever I want to do. And then uh, I learned this from Sean McDowell as well. Uh, I, I, you say, okay, picture the person who is most free. And the answers are like the person who's alone on a desert island or a tropical island or, uh, you know, out in the woods, right? But there's no government, no rules, no laws. You can literally do whatever you want to do. And then I ask, now let's say God exists. What does he change in this equation? And often the answer is, well, now there's consequences, right? And so for many Christian students, the way that God changes freedom is simply now you're, you should still should be free to do whatever you want, but now if you do something wrong, you get punished, right? It's only the punishment factor. 
See, the students understand freedom from the law, freedom from rules, freedom from restraints. Someone is keeping you from being able to do what you want. That's not free. What often Christian students and Christians in general don't recognize is not just freedom from, but freedom for. Freedom to do what you have been created and designed to do. We often don't think about this freedom for the law or freedom to fulfill the law. We just want freedom from the law, from rules. And so here's a quote from Christopher West in his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. He says, most people look at Christian morality, especially Christian sexual morality, as an oppressive list of rules to follow. I'm reading a few books. Uh, I just started a book by a transgender sociologist uh, arguing for transgenderism. Uh, and really the whole beginning section of the book is just talking about how, you know, uh, any sort of law or rule that is imposed on you is oppressive, is wrong, needs to be thrown off. And that's often how people see Christian morality. Right again, I was at a summer camp. A student comes in. I've told the story many times. He was at a previous breakout session before he came into mine. I said, "Hey, what'd you learn?" He goes, "I just learned the list of don'ts." I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "You know, don't drink, don't have sex, don't do drugs. You know, you know the the, the Christian list of don'ts." It's like, really, is 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 this the only way that we approach this topic? Of here's just this external, don't do these things, and then you'll be good. It's, it seems like an oppressive list, and so people often reject it and they find freedom and joy. That's another thing I'm finding in my research on transgenderism is people talking about this, this joy of finally just getting to do what they want to do. And ultimately this idea of personal autonomy, this ultimate personal freedom to do whatever you want is the standard. That's a desire that we all want is to do whatever we want to do. The question is, is that what we should be doing? All right, so getting back to the quote, he says, uh, many people see the Christian morality as an oppressive list of rules to follow. How far this misunderstanding is from living morally proclaimed by Christ. Here it is. The gospel doesn't give us more rules to follow. The gospel is meant to change our hearts so that we no longer need the rules. To the degree that we experience this change of heart, we experience what the Bible calls freedom from the law. Not freedom to break the law, but freedom to fulfill it. And he gives this wonderful example of what this means. He asks this question and says, do you have a desire to murder your best friend? Now, hopefully your answer is no, you don't. So you are fulfilling the law when it calls you to not murder. Because you're not murdering, you're fulfilling the law. You're not doing it because there's this rule that says don't do it. You're fulfilling it because you don't even, you don't even want to. You don't even have the desire to. And so your heart has been changed where you don't even want to kill this person. And so you're doing what you should, not just because there's a rule, but because you have this internal desire from the heart to love them, not hurt them. And imagine what friendships would be like. If the only reason you didn't murder all your friends is because, well, there's a law that says I can't murder you, so man, I really want to, right? Jesus addressed this, right? It's not just don't have, no, don't have an affair, but if you even look at a woman lustfully with your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you hate your brother, you committed murder. This idea of like, what is going on in the heart? And the Pharisees are always like, hey, look at what they're doing. It's like, you know, you, you eat these foods. And, you know, and I was just reading the other day where the disciples are eating the food. It's like, you, you eat with unclean hands. Like, Jesus, what do you mean by this? And he's like, don't you realize it's not what you put into the mouth that's what corrupts you, but it's what comes out. It's what flows from the heart. 
And so we don't have this freedom from the law to break it and do whatever we want, but we have the freedom to fulfill it. We're not doing what's right because there's these external commands and rules, or we find these pragmatic because it's, I found some pragmatic benefit to my life. You do it because that's just what I want to do because I've been transformed by following Jesus. Now, here's the big kicker. Here's the fun part. What about all the times that we don't do what we're supposed to do? Where it's hard. Here's the question that Christopher West asks that I think is very profound. He says, here's a question we can ask ourselves to determine where our hearts still need to be liberated. What laws do you still need? Or what laws feel like a burden or an imposition? Perhaps the problem is not with the law, but with our own hardness of heart. If this is where we find ourselves, the solution is not to toss out the law. The solution is to surrender our disordered desires to Christ and let him transform them. I think this is so good to reflect on. This is why when I talk about entertainment with students, we often as as Christian parents and leaders and teachers approach students with this external rule. Watch this. Don't watch this. Here's what's bad. Here's what's good. You can't watch these things. And we, we make this off limits. Well, when we make these things off limits, what does the student or what does the person often want to do? How close can I get to that limit before I've done something I shouldn't have done? How close can I get to the edge? And we try to build this really strong barrier, this really strong fence of what this is all the bad stuff. Don't go there. But we often want to get close to that. And this is why students, when it comes to sexual ethics, will often say, well, how far is too far? How far can I go with my girlfriend or my boyfriend before I've gone too far? They want to know where that line is for what is right living and what is wrong living. And they don't want to get to that wrong side. And so you create this line. Here's where that line is. Don't do these things. And then it's like, hey, don't have sex. Don't drink. Don't do drugs. Don't do these things. And there's where the line is. And I'm going to try to not cross that line. But we often have sinful desires. We have these, oh man, but that's such a burden. Why can't I do these things? These questions start to come to mind. And this is where Christopher West is saying, look, if you still need a law to do this thing, if you still need the rule, like don't have sex before marriage, and that's the only thing that's keeping you from having sex before marriage, then that doesn't show that there's a wrongness with the law. That shows that your heart still needs to be liberated. You still have a disordered desire that needs to be surrendered and transformed by Christ. Where it's not, you know, there's a goodness to rules. Don't get me wrong. We should have rules. And often little kids need rules. And this is one way we teach them right or wrong is to have those rules. But the goal in raising children is to get them to where they're not just doing something or not doing something because there's a rule against it, but because we've actually changed and transformed their desires to where they want to do what is right. And these transformation ultimately happens through the gospel, where We want to develop a love in ourselves and a love in our kids, our students, whoever we're mentoring, where they love Jesus so much, they want to follow him and his example of love, generosity, and purity and holiness, right? Where where we start to do what is right because our motivation is not some rule. 
our motivation is not just punishment, right? People often think of, you know, Christians are just doing right because we're afraid of hell. It's not just this, I, I don't want to go to hell and so I'm going to do what's right. It's I'm doing what's right because I want to, because this is what Christ has called me to do and I want to be like him. So again, some other practical examples, the way I approach this with entertainment, we often have this list of do's and don'ts with entertainment. And then we say, okay, don't cross the line. My goal with entertainment is this, don't just don't listen to that song because your parent says, don't listen to it. (laughs) But instead, how do we become people who are transformed? For example, let me, let me pull up this passage. I wasn't planning this. The example I often bring up, um, when I, um, teach on entertainment, Philippians four, right? Um, in, in verse, uh, eight, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things, dwell on the things that are pure, just, lovely, honorable, true. I often show the movie clip from Ratatouille and the, and the clip, uh, you can find it on YouTube, but the, the clip from Ratatouille where, uh, Remy, the rat is coming out, uh, with some food, a tray full of food and his brother is eating trash. And he says, no, 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 spit that out. And he makes his brother spit out the trash and, he's, and he doesn't just say, don't eat trash, eat this, right? It's not this external command. Remy's response is, I have to teach you about food. And he begins to try to teach his brother about food, how to enjoy food, how flavors can combine and create these new, really cool experiences. And ultimately he loses his brother, but this is what you have to think about. And I, and I often use this when I approach uh, entertainment with students as I say, look, you need to become with entertainment like foodies are with food. If someone has this internal motivation for good, healthy living, where they truly love and enjoy food, you don't have to tell them to not eat the garbage. You don't have to tell them to stop eating junk food. They don't even want to eat the junk food. You might have to be like, come on, eat some ice cream, (laughs) do it. Because they don't want things that are not good for them. They're not just eating healthy because there's some sort of rule upon them. Sometimes we do that and we have rules when we can't really control ourselves. But when we truly love, appreciate, and enjoy the good food and you have this foodie, they, they go out of their way to eat good food. You don't have to have those same rules. How do we become people when it comes to entertainment that we want to focus on things that are good, true, and beautiful rather than lies, ugliness, and badness, right? That you don't watch that movie, not because your parents said you can't watch it, but because you don't even want to consume that bad stuff. We have to recognize consuming entertainment, like consuming food, you bring bad stuff in, it will affect you. The problem is we often just don't see the effects of bad entertainment like we see the effects of bad food. You eat some bad food, the next day you are miserable. You watch something bad, you don't necessarily feel miserable. And so it's often more difficult to see the effects. But again, I think this is the same motivation I appeal to. It's not just like, here's here's another Christian leader in your life, some authority that's going to say, don't watch these things. Here's all the off-limits movies and music, and here's all the stuff that you should watch. Stop with secular music, only listen to Christian music. No, it's how do we transform people to where they want to live following the example of Christ and what his word has given us, where it says, dwell on things that are good, true, beautiful. This is what we should think about. And then it changes the internal motivation. This affects us with generosity, 
affects us with our sexual ethics. Oh, I, I, I skipped over that example, right? Students always ask, how close can I get before I've gone too far? How far is too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend? By the way, I'm finishing up. So if anyone still is here live, um, I will be taking questions here in just a moment. Imagine if I asked the question, how far is too far when it comes to me being like a good father? Like, where's the line between like a bad father and a good father? Like, what are the things I shouldn't be doing? What are the things I should be doing? And then how close can I get to that line of being a bad father before I'm actually a bad father? How close can I be to being a terrible husband before I cross that line to where I'm really a terrible husband? I asked a group of students this question once and a student responded instantly. The fact that you're asking that shows you're a terrible husband. <laughs> and how true is that, right? How true is that? If I'm saying like, how bad can I be? Or how close can I be to that line of bad before I'm a bad father? Then that shows like you're, you're just not a good father or husband. Why? Because a good father and husband is not saying how close, how much bad can I do? The question is, how can I love my wife? How can I love my children? How can I do what's best for them? I'm not trying to say, how close can I get to the immoral line? I'm saying, how can I go way over here to where I'm not crazy? There is a point where you're so far over here, it's almost like you're crazy, where you don't, won't watch anything. This is, I think, what we have to recognize and, and develop in ourselves and develop in students, where we see the gospel not just as you hear the gospel, you're saved, and now we kind of forget about it, and then we need the gospel in our evangelism efforts, but where we see the gospel in what Jesus Christ did, giving up his riches, taking on poverty, so that through his poverty, we might be rich, seeing his example of generosity and leading us to be generous seeing his example of love, that he died for us while we were still sinners, and using that as my motivation for how I am going to love, seeing his example of grace being my motivation of being gracious, seeing his example of forgiveness and how I then go about and forgive, his example of kindness and how I am kind, his example of upholding dignity and value of humans in my, as my example of holding up the dignity and value of humans. This is that standard that is not an external command or external rules, but a motivation that flows from the heart, a heart that is transformed by Christ. And so ask yourself each and every day when you think about some sort of thing that you really want to do, and it's like, man, I'm not doing it, but why? Because I, I can't or something, because there's that rule. What motivations or what laws do I still need? What laws still feel like a burden or an imposition? And then how do we bring that before God, surrender those disordered desires to Christ and let him transform them so that I no longer need that law? Not because the law is irrelevant, now I get to do whatever I want, but I can fulfill the law because I'm just doing what's right because I want to, because I've been transformed by Christ rather than because the law says I can't. Well, um, yeah, I, I just, man, I'm just thinking about that. The theology body, how the gospel radically changes our view of sexuality and how we approach these different sexual topics. Um, and then, of course, this example of, um, of giving from 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and living uh, out and using Christ as that standard of morality. He is the highest standard of giving, the highest standard of morality. And he is the one that we are called to reflect. Obviously, we are going to fall short. We are not going to be able to perfectly live like Christ lived, but it is 
our goal and it should be our motivation. And it is a test of our faith and our love for God by looking at the lives of Christians and saying, are you genuinely following or do you desire to follow the example of Christ? And again, I think just like as First John 3, 17 says, if, if people are in need of something, I'm like, whatever, I don't care about you guys. Um, that is a reflection of my love, my faith, and how I'm living out, how Christ has called me to live. So uh, with that, I don't see any questions that came in in the live chat. I have not received any uh, requests for a conversation. So unless something comes in really quickly, let me give you a couple quick announcements, and then I will be signing off for the week. Um, uh, some interviews had to get moved around. Uh, so let me give you a couple things. Uh, for you. And while I'm pulling up my calendar, let me just say this. If you want to pray uh, for me, uh, there's two different ways that you can do this. Number one um, is I'm coming up into crunch period time for my doctoral research. Everything is due October 31st. So I have less than two months to finish up. And so again, uh, my research is, is two phases. Uh, so the first part is I'm writing a th and, and doing academic study on a theology of the body and how that inf should inform our gender identity um, and then engage with topics related to transgenderism and, uh, and, and hopefully uh, uh, approaching the, the, the cultural issue of transgender ideology better, more informed by scripture and our theology and what the Bible has to say about us and our bodies and our gender. Then the second aspect of the research is then to create a practical uh, um, um, solution. And so I am actually working on creating like a seminar for parents, uh, youth leaders and uh, Christian, you know, educators, teachers, to then equip them in a proper theology of the body to then respond to questions about transgenderism, gender dysphoria, and then working with students who are experiencing gender dysphoria in the classroom or their kids or in their youth group. And so uh, these two aspects, the, the theology paper applied to transgenderism, and then the, the practical project in creating a seminar equipping class for uh, leaders um, to, to work through this issue uh, is all due October 31st. So I've read like six books on the topic. And I still have five more on my list that I really want to get through before this is done. So I got two big papers uh, and five books to read uh, over the next uh, month and a half with um, some upcoming uh, trips. So a upcoming Maven trip uh, to Utah. And so there's just a lot going on. So I could use your prayer. The other thing that you can be praying about uh, for me and also the ministry is that we're coming up on this end of the year and looking into the 2024 budget for ThinkWell. And we do have a need to grow and expand our um, our ministry partner team. And so I've uh, kind of been putting in some work in trying to grow and, and to reach out to individuals as far as becoming um, ministry partners, financial partners of ThinkWell and kind of building up that foundation of monthly support. And so we are in need of some monthly supporters. If you are interested or want to discuss more about that, please uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, my email, ryan at think-well.org is a great place for you to email. And I would love to set up a phone call with you uh, to chat about what that would mean and to kind of share more about the ministry and what else is happening besides what you may be seeing here in YouTube or podcast. And so uh, that is another way that you can be praying for the ministry, that we would continue to to grow that partner base and uh, be able to make budget for our next year. And so I'm a uh, huge praise that we have 
made budget for 2023 um, and that we're pretty much there. Uh, and now we're kind of focusing in on that next year. So anyways, calendar coming up, interviews. Uh, Natasha Crane was supposed to be today on her book, Faithfully Different. That has been moved to September 26th. So September 26th at 10 a.m., Natasha Crane is going to be joining to discuss her book, Faithfully Different. Now, I had an interview um, on this book, Who Are You Really? by Joshua Rasmussen, a philosopher's inquiry into the nature and origin of persons. That was supposed to be September 28th, but I'm actually going to be on a Maven trip at that time. And so that has been moved to October 26. Um, and so that is what is coming up there. Um, another couple things that have come in the mail that I'm going to show you here really quick. This doesn't come out till January. Uh, the De- Deconstruction of Christianity by Lisa Childers and Tim Barnett. Uh, what deconstruction is, how it's destructive, and how to respond. Uh, so that is going to be an interview that is going to come up some point in the future. Here is that <clears throat> Faithfully Different book by Natasha Crane. Uh, this came out a little while, but Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Uh, this is going to be again September 26. And then the other book that I'm working on uh, setting up a time for the interview right now, and it will be some point soon, is this new book by Sean McDowell and John Marriott, Seth, Set Adrift, Deconstructing What You Believe Without Sinking Your Faith. Two different books uh, recently on deconstruction have come out and are there. Uh, Last one, and I don't think I brought it up into my office because I just got it in the mail. I think it is still downstairs. But it is a new book that just came out on how to have better conversations with Mormons at your door. And so uh, that is another interview that you can be looking at uh, or looking forward to on if you want to learn how to have better conversations with your Mormon neighbor, your Mormon friends, or the Mormon missionaries that show up at your door. I've done a few conversations on that, but here's a new author kind of coming up with a new approach or new book, having some advice and tactics on how to do this well. So those are some of the interviews coming up as well as other conversations I am having with other theologians and philosophers. Um, Again, uh, reach out that uh, I also have the conversations where if you want to, not just on the spot as I'm going live, call and have a conversation, but you want to kind of schedule a call with me, I'd be happy to schedule a call and kind of work through an issue with you. Last thing here I will say on YouTube is that if you head over to Instagram, I've started this recently, is doing Instagram Live Mondays. It kind of functions very similar to this in a sense, but I don't do necessarily interviews over there. Uh, that's just a much more informal conversation, uh, just responding to questions that I get on Instagram because I realize a lot of questions and, and interaction happens on Instagram from students that is not much uh, here on YouTube. And so uh, I have to do a different live stream on Mondays, normally Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific time over on Instagram, kind of working through things there. And what I'm going to be working through this coming Monday is a question I received from a student on how do we make a case, um, a biblical argument for sexuality to friends who do not see the Bible as an authority. So if we're trying to explain why we think that homosexuality and homosexual sex is a sin, um, but they don't see the Bible as an authority, how do we go about doing that? And so that is um, uh, what you... um, What's going to happen on Instagram next week? Um, otherwise, um, I think I'm all out of announcements. Um, oh, one other thing, I guess, is uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I've been so slow on this. Apologize, but um, this week, the September training letter is going to be coming out for Think Well on um, how do we, as Christians, uh, engage in the public sphere. Uh, so when it comes to voting and our political engagement, uh, how do we engage in that world as Christians? And so the first part is going to be uh, 
kind of going over why we need to be making natural law arguments. And then October, the idea is the right, the second part to that of then applying that to traditional marriage and, and showing you how to make a natural law argument for a biblical view of marriage. So without just saying the Bible says so. So kind of addressing the question that came in on Instagram. So if you're watching on YouTube, there is a uh, sign up uh, link for that uh, in the description below. It says, you know, um, training letter or get more from ThinkWell or something like that. And you can sign up to receive that training letter uh, there. So with that, I don't see any questions that come in. I've been talking way too much and I have given you all the announcements I can think to give you and I can't think of anything else. So with that, have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless. And I will see you all next time. Until then, continue to think well about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. See everybody. Have a good rest of your day and a good week. Bye. Hesitate to follow your love.